The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. And here we are, and we are still very live on the Radical Reverend Show here at CRT 89.5 FM. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, just a reminder, this show will also be up on SoundCloud in a few days so that you can continue to listen to it. And of course, we're at University of Toronto, and it's pretty empty. We all know why it's pretty empty. Um, we are in the midst of a pandemic here in Toronto, in this world. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the first half of the show. For the second half of the show, we're going to be uh, speaking about something else that's just as pressing, and that is uh, climate justice and what's happening there, because all the news is only about the pandemic. So we'll try to broaden that out a little bit for you. But right now, let's talk uh, to Natalie Mera, and uh, the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, and quite frankly, the go-to person, I think, uh, on this topic. Natalie, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hello, Natalie. Oh, little technical difficulty here. Uh, we're working it out. Hello, Natalie. Hi. Natalie, are you there? Uh, this is Kendall, actually. <laughs> oh, Kendall. Oh, no, it's, it's uh, sorry, Kendall. Um, okay. Oh, okay, you know what? Uh, can you, we phone you back at the 430 yeah. mark? Yeah, because sure. we're going to be talking to, uh, first of all, to Natalie. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Kendall. Um, while, while Byron is getting uh, Natalie on the phone, and that's uh, my mistake, I own it. Um, let's talk about the pandemic, and I'm always interested in what you think, by the way. So I am here, uh, Radical Reverend, uh, a.k.a. Sherry DeNovo, also minister at Trinity St. Paul's uh, Center for Faith, Justice, and the Arts. And as that, um, we are uh, shutting down uh, Trinity St. Paul's, both the center and the church. We will be broadcasting church every Sunday online at 1030. So if you listen in this Sunday, you can hear us. We're going Facebook Live, but it will also be on our website. And uh, you can follow along there. Or And by the way, we're also going to try singing along. So uh, we'll have you singing some hymns at home. It's like karaoke, only better. Uh, so follow us along on Sundays at 1030 at Trinity St. Paul's and you can do that on their Facebook site, on my Facebook site, Sherry DeNovo, or on the website. Uh, but now we have Natalie Mera, uh, Executive Director of Ontario Health uh, Coalition on the line. Natalie, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. <laughs> Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I, I, as I said earlier on, on air, you're the go-to person as far as I'm concerned. Tell us a little bit about your organization, first of all, so people out there in listener land know who I'm speaking to. Oh, okay. Well, we were formed uh, ultimately out of a conference um, that was oh, held in the 1980s when, it, uh, when, when there was a crisis around extra billing of patients. Uh, and we were formed to be sort of a watchdog for public health care in the country to protect patients against extra billing and user fees. And then as 
help restructuring sort of took hold and they started to cut services and offload patients into, you know, less expensive modes of care than also meant that they had less care. We have advocated for policy change in the public interest and to protect patients and stop privatization. Uh, which is exactly what we need. And, and also, of course, your frontline workers, right? Yeah, so we're formed, I mean, our, our networks are made up of frontline workers that support public health care, their unions, health professionals, doctors, nurses that support public health care, nonprofits, uh, and then citizens groups and patient advocacy groups and so on. So this whole range of sort of community organizations that believe in public health care for all and want to protect it. Uh, so the rest of us are, are being sent a lot of messages. Uh, I mean, we all probably just listened uh, to what the Prime Minister had to say uh, uh, upon, uh, immediately upon his uh, statements. Uh, the Beaverton posted that we are now exclusively importing COVID-19 from the United States, which is pretty blackly funny, um, but one has to wonder why the exemption to the U.S. for starters. But, but the other thing that I'm hearing is, you know, real concern for all of those people uh, kind of who are precariously employed, who are artists, who are event staff, who are, uh, you know, in uh, working from home, people who don't have that safety net and whose livelihoods are going to be seriously impacted immediately. Um, so there's concern there. And then the other concern, of course, and this is I'll raise with you, is for our frontline workers, for our healthcare workers, because while we're self-isolating or not going out to dinner or, you know, shutting down concerts, um, frontline workers are still there and they're in the midst of it. So what's it like for them? Oh, boy. I mean, public health has is shouldering the brunt of this at the moment. Uh, and um, and so and public health was cut by the Ford government this year. Uh, and uh, under pressure, they rolled back the cuts, but they didn't reverse them entirely. Uh, and so and what uh, are those cuts, just so people know. Well, it, it's kind of a moving target, but they they changed um, and it depends on the city you're in. So it's hard to give you a very concrete a number, but but originally um, the cut was um, so that the province was no longer going to fund uh, around 80%. It was going to fund around 70% of public health. And then now, you know, that changed by about 5% or so uh, to the better. Um, but the city of Toronto was harder hit than other um, municipalities in uh, Ontario by that. So it's a it's a bit of a mishmash. The actual figures for Toronto, for example, Joe Cressy, who's the chair of um, the Board of Public Health, and he's a city councillor, he's been keeping track of them. And you can, if you look at his Twitter or his Facebook, you can find the actual numbers for Toronto there. But they're, they're very significant. I mean, they amount to billions of dollars for for Toronto over, you know, over a, an accumulation of years. That's the, you know, the ones that I have seen on his, uh, on his Facebook posted occasionally. Uh, so they're very significant cuts. So public health, those are the people who are um, tracking each person that gets COVID-19 and figuring out who they've been in contact with, interviewing them, finding out who they've been in contact with, tracking all their contacts, notifying all their contacts, checking in every day with the, the people that are quarantined 
they're also answering the phones for everyone who think, you know, all the people that are phoning in who think that they have symptoms or are, are afraid or have questions about symptoms. They are sort of the front line and they are absolutely inundated right now. That's public health. The hospitals, of course, have been running it over capacity. So they're more, you know, entirely full and more than every bed is taken up patients are waiting on stretchers and hallways in all the major hospitals in Ontario and that continues to be the case um, the government has now said that it is uh, going to scale down what, what they're calling elective surgeries to try and clear out some hospital beds in preparation for more people having to go into the hospital um, with COVID-19, the, ser- the, the serious symptoms of COVID-19. Um, and so that that's what's happening now in the hospitals. Long-term care homes are not accepting visitors as a, as, uh, across the board. And they are, um, uh, so that's a very difficult situation because the families help the staff in long-term care homes because there is a severe staffing shortage and um, it's a big problem there. So, uh, but so, so everyone is very stretched sort of across the, across the health system. Just normally they're very stretched, but at this point they're very stretched dealing with it. And of course they're, they're most precariously employed in the sense of their health too. So if we lose frontline healthcare workers, they were really up the Creek, right? Yeah. I mean, everywhere the frontline healthcare workers, uh, the frontline healthcare workers, uh, from the PSWs to the nurses to the doctors to the technicians, you know, the respiratory technologists and the laboratory technicians, and you know, all of the health professionals are at, you know, a heightened risk, obviously, because they're more exposed in situations like this. And I mean, they're used to that; they work in that every day. These situations, though, are very, very trying and we've heard now from the United States and from Italy and from China about all of the doctors especially um, because they tend to make the news more than others uh, that have gotten COVID-19 or have died from it but I mean the same remains true for PSWs and nurses and um, all of the range of health professionals it's a a scary time and and a lot of work for them in these situations so um, and so when you, and I'm sure you do, uh, advocate on behalf of, of folk uh, and speak to people in the Conservative government, I'm thinking Christine Elliott here, and this is, uh, Christine Elliott was on the show a couple of times actually back in the day. Uh, I have to mm-hmm. say, just watching people kind of clap every time Doug opens his mouth and uh, and be responsible for some of these cuts, it's you know, distressing to say the least, even though ideologically we're, we've never been on the same page, at least you think people have, you know, the humanity to recognize when money is needed. Um, when you speak to p- folk there, what is, uh, do they not get it? Do they not get that cutting uh, dollars from healthcare now is exactly the worst thing you can do? You know, I, well, this minister, so Christine Elliott, who's the Minister of Health, has not spoken to us since she took office. Funnily enough, I met with her, you know, and all of the Health Coalition people have met with her plenty of times before that. But uh, ever since they took office and started cutting, they, you know, don't respond to correspondence or, you know, send a brief response, but they don't actually meet. Uh, So I haven't had a conversation directly with her. I have met with virtually every other health minister 
in the last 20 years, <laughs> but not Christine Elliott. Uh, but I have to say that looking at the government's response over the last week, you know, um, they haven't even, I mean, they've just, last week they announced that they were going to extend this year's public health funding to next year um, and limit uh, the cuts. So they haven't even reversed, as far as I can find. We're trying to get to the bottom of the announcement exactly. But but what it looks like is they're extending the cut level of public health funding to next year, and they're delaying further cuts. But they haven't even fully reversed the cuts that have happened so far. I find that shocking. It's a global pandemic. You know, that is uh, uh, far too... Um, I don't know. What is the word? Even? I don't I even mean, know what the word is I mean, for this that. This is a time they should be injecting more money into the health yeah, system. It's ridiculous. Well, they did announce $100 million for health care overall. But on public health alone, where they have, as I said, made very significant cuts over the last year, to, to not even, you know, I mean, they should be pouring money into public health right now. That's what should be happening. People are calling. People are telling us they're calling Public Health and Telehealth Ontario because that's what the government is telling people to do if they think they have symptoms, and they can't get through. They can't get an answer at all because they're just completely overwhelmed. Uh, so in the, in, in the midst of this, um, I, and I know there are listeners out there feeling a little panicked, and one of the things I've been saying is, you know, panic doesn't help anybody, fear doesn't help anybody. What should people be doing? Um, yeah, tell us. Okay, so if you have symptoms, so the symptoms are dry cough and fever, difficulty breathing. Um, if you have symptoms, you should call Telehealth Ontario. Um, and uh, I can dig up the number while we're talking. I'll just dig up the number. So I'm just waving to Megan to dig up the number for Telehealth Ontario um, and, uh, or your local public health unit. I realize it's hard to get through, um, but keep at it, uh, or you can call your family doctor or your whoever gives you your primary care, so your community health center or your nurse practitioner, you can call them. They're advising people not to go in because they don't want people sitting in emergency, in, in waiting rooms and possibly passing on the virus to other people. So they're asking that you call first and make a time to go in that it's safe or follow their instructions about how to get assessed. And they'll do a pre-screening because they're limiting the number of tests to just the people that they're saying are the most severely ill. So I guess that means the most of the severe symptoms because they don't have enough tests. So at this point, um, they're doing a pre-screening over the phone so that they can give you uh, advice as to you know whether to go into an assessment center and then where to go and so on. So I'll just repeat that. So you can call Telehealth Ontario, which is one 866 Seven nine seven zero 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 zero. So that's Telehealth Ontario seven nine seven zero 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 zero. It's one eight six six, and um, or your local public health unit, or uh, if you can't get through there, call your family doctor or your nurse practitioner or your community health center wherever you go. Your your primary care practitioner, and if you have one, and ask them. You could also call a walk, your walk-in clinic if that's where you go and ask them. 
I mean, this is this uh, you know I this pandemic that we're in the midst of. Um, one, the other question that I've heard too is, people don't know, how, you know, how safe to be. I guess this is a question. Um, you know, you see some posts on social media that say, you know, where this is overblown. Where you know, uh, it's, we shouldn't be so panicked. You know, go out to restaurants, support your local businesses. Other people say, stay home. Don't go out to eat. Don't, uh, you know, try to self isolate if you can. Um, don't certainly go. Uh, to any large gatherings, most of which have been cancelled anyway. Where where does one err on the side of caution? What should we be doing? Should we be self-isolating already or what? You know, I, don't, I can't give that advice. I don't know. I mean, what we're trying to do is ask the provincial government to give clear advice to people so that they know. And they've been awfully slow in coming and, and actually... Um, we're quite frustrated at the, you know, on the same day, you know, one day um, our premier Doug Ford tells everyone to go off for their March break vacation last, last week. And the day after the federal health minister told people not to travel, it seems that, you know, our province is a little bit slow to, uh, to be giving people advice to um, not travel and not to those, those things and the kind of, you know, has been flip-flopping, understandably in some ways, but also in some ways they have been offside with those who are trying to err more on the side of caution last week. Uh, so at this point, there isn't really super clear advice either for employers coming out of the provincial government or for patients, and that's what we're calling for. I mean, I can't, I'm no epidemiologist, I'm not a physician, I can't tell people what is the right thing to do. All I can do is say this is what, you know, the public health experts in the country are saying. Uh, and so the public health experts in the country are saying to engage in social distancing. Uh, and and that is, I think, the soundest advice to follow. But specifics about what that means in different circumstances need to be made more clear to the public. Uh, and we need some political leadership that you know, that doesn't sort of duck that question, but actually answers that question, makes a determination, gives people the advice that they need. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to jump uh, a, a little bit to a kind of higher view of healthcare here. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to me that when we look south of the border at a country where I think the last figure I saw was almost half a, you know, like basically almost 100 million people have substandard healthcare or no healthcare at all down there now. Um, and Clear, and this would seem to anybody, most people, I think, in the world to, to say, and, and then when a pandemic hits, this is the worst possible scenario, is that people are frightened to go and get tested or have their symptoms look, looked at because they can't afford it. Um, do you think, the, the, I mean, behind the cuts of the Ford government, you certainly, certainly this seems to be the case in education, I mean, there seems to be this ideology of privatization. Um, is that what's happening here with health care? Is, is that really what's behind the cuts on their agenda, is that they would like to see us kind of segue into more of a system like the United States? I mean, what's, what's your feel about this? I think um, it is definitely privatization. I mean, this is what's happened. In Ontario, we've had about half of our hospital beds cut in, in, in our province, even as the population has grown dramatically. That's why we have the fewest hospital beds left per person of any province in the country. And we're at, right at the bottom of the OECD. So all of the developed nations on Earth, you know, have better 
numbers in terms of hospital beds, more hospital bed capacity than Ontario does. We are a radical outlier. It is shocking as you say that. Yeah, it's the truth, though. Mm -hmm. And we're a radical outlier in terms of the downsizing of our hospitals. So why are they so intent on downsizing hospitals endlessly? Well, because they're the most public part of the system. Patients are paid for day and night. Their meals are paid for. Their drugs are paid for. They get the most care there. They're publicly owned and operated uh, in this province. Every single bit of capacity that they've moved out of hospitals, they've privatized. The majority of long-term care homes have been handed over to for-profit companies and now chains that dominate the market. Home care has been overwhelmingly privatized. You know, they've they've moved as much as they could, although we've fought them every step of the way to private uh, for-profit clinics and so on. So all of that transformation of healthcare has been about privatization and increasingly not just the privatization of who owns and operates it, but also the privatization of payment for it. So when you're moved out of hospital, you're moved out from under the Canada Health Act, and you often have co-payments or user fees, and now they've decided long-term care homes are too expensive, and they're rationing them severely. There's 36,000 people on the wait list in Ontario for long-term care homes. All the beds are full in long-term care as well as the hospitals. And so they're moving people to private for-profit retirement homes and the like. Um, and, and just so without people, standards. And, and just to interrupt you there, I mean, it's this is shocking, all of it. But so, you know, for a lot of younger listeners who maybe don't know the costs, I mean, what what are we looking at when, when somebody's moved into long-term care and they really need intensive care? What kind of costs a month are we looking at for, that people are paying? Well, one of our members in Durham, so in Oshawa, was trying to find a long-term care home for his mom. All of the long-term care homes were full, so he had to pay privately. And it, um, he couldn't, uh, I think he couldn't find anything for less than $2,000 a month. And that's cheap. Uh, because the reason I asked you is I just heard about one long-term care home that was charging in downtown Toronto $9,000 a month. Yeah. $9,000 a month for care. Yeah. I mean, people can't afford it. So they go without and they suffer. And the whole reason we created public Medicare in the first place in this country was to alleviate that suffering for people. And especially to me, it's unforgivable for it's unforgivable for anyone. But when you consider the elderly, they have so few options. When you're elderly and you're frail, you can't go back to work and make more money. There's not there's nowhere for you to go. And people ought not to have paid all their life in their taxes and thought that there would be a health care system there for them, only to have it pulled away when they need it the very most. It's appalling. I think it's an abrogation of the core values of our society. People don't support it, and they don't vote for it. But people run for government, and they say that they're going to improve health care, and they lie. When they get into office, they cut it, or they maintain the same, the same trajectory, which is downsize the public hospitals, privatize long-term care, privatize home care, ration long-term care. I mean, this has been going on for, for decades now. Uh, yeah, it's it's horrendous. And um, not that we're not going to hold the Ford government accountable, but uh, when I was at Queen's Park, I was serving under uh, liberal majority governments who also cut some things. We forget about that, too. That's right. They kept the trajectory, too. There's yeah. no, you know, it is not... Um, the Ministry of Health is intent on this direction, and unless we shake them off of it, 
you know, it's not going to stop. Regular people have to stand up and force them to stop this. That's what's going to have to happen here. After all of this is over, there will need to be a reckoning about what has happened because many of us have been raising our voices for years that we don't have the capacity to deal with even a normal surge, you know, the regular flu every year without people really suffering, you know, a lot. And uh, and this, I just think, has brought into sharp relief how unprepared we are. Not to, I don't mean to spread panic, and I, I, I don't want, like, in any way to be a voice that is spreading panic at the moment. We have relatively few cases, and it is being managed. And public health is doing an amazing job of... Um, of, of managing and tracking and all of the exact, you know, the things that the evidence from around the world points to, to us needing to do. You know, that is all happening. It's happening amazingly well. But the issue is, you know, can we deal with thousands of cases all coming at once? No. I mean, that's the problem. Uh, by the way, speaking uh, to the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, um, and thank you for being on the show. Um, so what a couple of other things I just wanted to touch on. I know everybody's in all we're hearing now is about COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, and, and you've outlined, I think, very dramatically, you know, why we find ourselves in particular bind in this province and dealing with it uh, because of the cuts that have been going on for so long. There's another epidemic too that, you know, and, and this tends not to happen to rich people. Um, uh, and that is the opioid epidemic. Um, I was looking at stats last year in the first few months, there were hundreds of lives lost in this province um, to the opioid epidemic. And that's still going on, right? That's still happening. Oh yeah, definitely. So um, let me. Can I just walk one step sure. backward? Because there's this Absolutely. thing. One thing I just people need to know that even though it sounds overwhelming, that you know we need to increase capacity in hospitals and in long-term care and in community care, and that should be public capacity because public nonprofit services are run in the public interest, not for private profit taking. Right? It matters mm-hmm. how they're organized. We can afford that. You know, we fund in Ontario our health care at the lowest rate in the country. We're right near the bottom of the country by any kind of measure in terms of how we fund health care. We're dead last in the country in terms of funding all of our public services. These are budget choices. Every other province has chosen to make more of a priority funding public services that benefit everyone rather than funding tax breaks and tax cuts that benefit uh, you know, a wealthier tier, but the few of a society at the expense of everyone. Those are budget choices that have been made in Ontario. They can be changed. They're human decisions and they can and they must be reversed. I just wanted to, like, it, I didn't want to make it sound like no, it's no, so course. overwhelming. It can't be tackled. It no, can, of course. of course, be tackled. And what people, I, I think, need to know, too, is, uh, you know, when people argue that, well, private for private is is actually more fiscally responsible and can deliver cheaper than public. Um, the, the simple answer to that is the United States, which has the most expensive healthcare system, one of them in the world, because it's so privatized. But, but exactly. yeah, just, yeah. yeah, for sure. And even here, when we see like private cataract surgery clinics, for example, they charge three times what the public system charges for cataract surgery. Three times, $1,500, $2,000, sometimes more than three times when it's $500 per eye in the public system. Or private MRI is, you know, starts at $1,000, 
for the simplest ones in a public hospital, the, the fee that, you know, that OHIP is paying the hospital is around $280. It's three times the cost of the private system, so it's not cheaper at all. Exactly. Yeah, um, so sorry, back to the no, opioid No, no, but the crisis. opioid, I, because I didn't want to forget about it, because yeah. we, ha- we seems like we have, um, and there was never the attention given that, uh, that I think was warranted to what actually was happening on the streets in our city. Um, so that's still happening, of course, um, and uh, people are still dying from it, right? Yeah, and um, I, the last stats that I saw were 4,000 people annually across Canada, dying um, from opioid overdose, and um, 2,000 of them, so half of them in Ontario. So very significant. Uh, And um, really uh, still remains a major, major problem. And in some areas, we are seeing, like in Hamilton, they increased the number of residential treatment beds, but in other areas like North Bay, they're actually cutting uh, residential treatment beds for addiction in the middle of this. Shocking. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for shocking us. I think we need to be shocked a little bit in this province about what's going on here. Um, just speaking of, uh, to the Executive Director of Ontario Health Coalition, Natalie Mara, thank you so much for all the good work you do and keep safe. Thank you, Sherry. You too. Uh, we're going to hear a tune that just jumped into my head right now. It's the classic Peggy Lee, Fever. If you have one, talk to telehealth. Here it is, Fever with Peggy Lee. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever when you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight. Fever in the morning, a fever all through the night. Everybody's Got the fever, that is something you all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Romeo loved Juliet Juliet, she felt the same When he put his arms around her He said, Julie, baby, you're my flame, now give us fever. When we kiss it, fever with thy flaming youth. Fever, I'm a fire. Fever, yea, I burn forsooth. Captain Smith and Pocahontas had a very mad affair when her daddy tried to kill him she said daddy oh don't 
misogynistic homophobic idiots think again religion and politics no matter what you believe shape the world listen to the revolutionary rantings of the radical reverend and other heretics every monday at 4 to 5 p.m Oh, scan us for Quago. Swatondaki and Nancy IUT, Wadreno Talk, 89.5 Niganto Nantahun, Tondo, Toronto, Ontario. And yes, the revolutionary rantings, the radical reverend are with you. Uh, I want to give a shout out too to Byron Griffiths behind the glass here, our tech. Uh, uh, and of course, we're down to two people in the studio because of the pandemic. And this is not just here, this is in other radio stations I know of and other uh, media outlets too. Um, so you just listened to Natalie Mera of the Ontario Health Coalition. Uh, and of course, uh, the pandemic, COVID-19 is dominating the news, but... Just before this this hit and took over all the airwaves, um, something else was dominating the news, news in this country, and that was and should be the climate crisis that we're in the midst of. And to speak about that, I have uh, uh, right now Kendall Marr, and she's with Fridays for Future, climate justice activist. And thank you, Kendall, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for having me here today. So let's talk about that, because all we're hearing now is about Mm COVID-19. What is happening with the Wet'suwet'en out on the West Coast? I mean, they're still in a standoff, right, with the RCMP? Uh, Yeah, so um, some of the updates that have occurred um, since uh, uh, of of late is um, they had some discussions with uh, some cabinet ministers, um, but uh, the media ended up... Uh, kind of pushing these discussions as resolutions to some of the demands that were being made by the uh, hereditary chief. Um, and it's kind of made uh, made it look like the, the fight is over, but uh, hereditary chiefs have spoken out and said that um, these discussions didn't come to an agreement that was appropriate. Uh, so they're calling on people to continue to take action. So um, we we should, but then the question is, mm-hmm. you know, with social distancing, I, I mm-hmm. really don't like that term. It sounds a little like shunning to me, but let's just <laughs> say spacing. We're spacing ourselves out, you know, wing length, I would say. Um, how can we, you know, we, we've seen thousands, and you have been partly mm-hmm. responsible uh, for this with Fridays for Future, this phenomenal outpouring. And if listeners don't know what that is, it's Fridays that uh, high school students predominantly uh, hit the streets and demand answers around the climate crisis so if we Mm -hmm. can't mass demonstrate what do we do yeah so there's been a really good showing of community and uh of activists kind of 
uh, understanding that in order to protect uh, vulnerable populations, it's really important for us to um, make sure that the youth who are uh, carriers of of the virus and who can pass it on easily to more vulnerable populations uh, keep their distance and uh, stay isolated, uh, which is unfortunate for activism and uh, mobilizing, but it also gives us an opportunity to strengthen those bonds um, that might be across provinces and with larger groups of people on the online sphere. Um, So over this week, uh, there's an online week of action for Wet'suwet'en. Um, it can be found on uh, on Instagram. Get into Get Him Den Checkpoint has a lot of information um, on these actions, and it's consisting of doing a lot of emailing and calling um, into uh, political representatives to continue to push for that um, that uh, action in regards to uh, uh, rights and title of land for the Wet'suwet'en people. So is April 3rd, isn't that the date for the mass demonstration? Is that still going to be mm-hmm. on? Or Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, we actually just had an organizing meeting last night uh, with the, the Global Strike organizers for Fridays for Future Toronto. Um, and in line with all of the other provinces and with Greta's uh, open call to Fridays for Future um, on an international basis, uh, we will also be moving our strike online. Online, so it's online mm-hmm. demonstrations now. Yeah. Um, is there, I mean, with the pandemic, there's kind of side effects of the pandemic. I mean, there's mm-hmm. less travel, people are moving around less, um, but then people are dying and, and our social systems are frail and being taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I mean, what are you seeing from your vantage point in terms of what's happening to the climate? Um, we know the price of of oil is is crashing, and that's mm-hmm. probably a good thing. Um, uh, certainly, I hope. I mean, you, you never know what's going to shake places like Alberta up, but one hopes that it it uh, gets people that are kind of one one trick pony economies like oil to get off fossil fuels. Um, but you know, w- mm-hmm. what do you think? What do you see? Yeah. So. Um, like with the the halt to um, like normal economic growth um, in China specifically, we saw like a decrease in greenhouse gases, which um, was very obvious. Um, but I think that we can't. Um, uh, there's there's not um, specifics that we can point to that um, like in this crisis we can kind of relate it to climate. On, on that superficial level, but we can also um, look at it as a way to understand how responses to crises have to happen in order to make sure um, people that are most vulnerable are actually supported by the social systems we have in place. Um, so just um, it's very blatant that the cuts to our um, healthcare system have impacted people very negatively over um, over this crisis so far and. Um, are going to get worse. So it's kind of um, a good opportunity for us to realize um, how to implement some precautionary measures to prevent um, like mass health uh, impacts to uh, ordinary people. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and it's also hopefully, I mean, we're in the midst of it, but hopefully an example of uh, how quickly governments can and should act 
to make some pretty mm-hmm. major changes if their backs are against the wall. Yeah. Um, but uh, one hopes it doesn't take, I mean, I, I've been under the suspicion for a while now that that where the climate's concerned, it, it really will be um, some some crisis that, that you know, mm-hmm. preempts action. We hope it's not, but uh, we've seen such slow movement, if movement at all, from governments. Um, so basically, though, right now on the west coast of our country, the gas line's going ahead, as far as you know? Yeah, so there, uh, the RCMP are still on with Southern Territory, and uh, coastal gas lines work- workers are um, continuing to build the pipeline. Um, but uh, the hereditary chiefs have actually... Uh, and the Wet'suwet'en Nation have launched two legal cases. So I think this has gone kind of under the radar because it was released two days ago that Mm. this um, actually happened. Um, And the first case is um, in order to review Coastal Gas Link's environmental assessments because they they have found that there's been at least 50 permit violations by the company and a failure to implement recommendations for, uh, for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So that was one of the first legal cases that they they launched. Um, and then the second one um, is actually in relation to the climate crisis. Uh, and it's saying that uh, Canada has a constitutional duty to protect its citizens from climate catastrophe. Um, and it argues that Canada's failure to do this would breach... Uh, the protection of the law guaranteed by uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So these are pretty big um, lawsuits that are being um, uh, legal challenges that are being uh, put forward by the Wet'suwet'en Nation. Um, And it's kind of a shame that it's been um, less prominent in the media because uh, it was so uh, forward when the blockades were happening. Uh, but I think that that's an important thing to recognize that moving forward, they're continuing to push for um, for the same demands that they've always said. And and of course, which is good. That's mm-hmm. good news. But does this halt them temporarily, at least until these these uh, suits are resolved, or are they still going ahead? Um, I think that they're still going ahead. Um, uh, it's my understanding that the workers are still on the territory, so it, it hasn't really changed a lot of the on-the-ground frontline uh, risk to the people who are uh, defending their territory up in BC. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm not quite sure how that will impact uh, the, the work that's being done. Uh, speaking, by the way, to Kendall Barr, Fridays for Future Climate Justice Activist. And Kendall, I'm going to ask you this only because I sort of know the answer. But you're very young, aren't you? How how old are you? Yeah, I'm 23. So you're very young. And thank you for your activism <laughs> because um, because you're our hope for the future. Thank you. So, I mean, this is, so, you know, just it seemed like weeks ago we were we were the main news was the blockades. Mm-hmm. Um, those have mainly been taken down now? Yeah, so the one in Tyendinaga is still um, holding strong. Um, That one is on the Mohawk Reserve, so uh, the people that live there can continue to um, hold up the blockade because (laughs) that's where they live. But um, most of the blockades that have popped up um, in the GTA um, have been taken down, and I think um, people are really taking precautions just because of the uh, the COVID outbreak. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think is so important is that people recognize that uh, not only the, the gas line in BC is still going ahead, but I mean, of course, we we sad to say our tax dollars have been used to buy a pipeline, and that mm -hmm. that is still ongoing, correct? Mm -hmm. It is, yeah, and it's um, like the price of that pipeline has also ballooned past um, their original um, price point. Um, so it's looking really bad now, especially since uh, the coronavirus has uh, decreased stock prices. So, yeah. So, so what are we looking at now? You say it's ballooned. Um, I, I'm not quite sure the the, the actual figures, but um, it's about twice as much as they originally planned to spend. So, uh, of course, moving rapidly in the wrong direction on that mm -hmm. too, uh, and it's so important. And I think you know, moving online obviously it's something that you have to do. But I I think it's so important that we keep getting this message out that the climate uh, crisis is still a crisis, and mm -hmm. in fact. Um, I was thinking about this because I remember one of the uh, one of the multiple uh, discussions that activists have been having about the climate is, you know, of course, the melting of our polar ice caps mm -hmm. and the releasing then of viruses yeah. that are there. So if we think this pandemic is bad, and it is, um, we are looking at more in the future if we don't get a handle on the climate crisis. Is that accurate? Yeah, so um, not only is like melting ice and permafrost um, a possibility of releasing viruses, but uh, deforestation forces wild animals and humans closer together. So that also creates um, more of a risk uh, to, to create these, um, these uh, zoonotic viruses with uh, animals and humans in close proximity. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it's all related and the the intersectionality of climate crisis knows no boundaries. So this is one of the, the related impacts of, of human existence and the way that we interact with our environment. So I have to ask, being the radical reverend and all, um, <laughs> so what gives you hope? You're 23, and look at the world that my generation has left you. Uh, you know, I, I apologize on behalf of a generation <laughs> or two, but, um, you know, listen, we tried. I mean, I'm, you're speaking to an activist, uh, but we failed, obviously, um, in, mm -hmm. in really making a dent in this. Uh, you're a young activist. What gives you hope going forward? What are you looking at going yeah, forward? Yeah, so first I think that the climate crisis is um, a global issue that can bring together so many different groups of people in a way that other issues haven't been able to in the past. Um, and we're seeing that um, across the world with uh, many different demonstrations uh, for social justice, but also for climate. Um, and I see those issues as one and the same. They're all connected. Um, and that mass mobilization gives me hope. It, it shows me that people aren't okay with the, uh, the status quo and that they need to continue to, um, to push for something that's better than what we have right now. Um, and then also just being part of uh, activist community. Um, it creates links with people in a way that we haven't really had um, like growing up, uh, especially with technology, it's really easy to distance yourself from people. Um, and uh, being part of the activist community really brings people together for a purpose that's bigger than yourself. So that's 
also really helpful for me. And certainly, I mean, one of the things I was talking uh, to Natalie um, about from Ontario Health Coalition was the impact on those who are not earning very much, those who mm -hmm. are precariously employed. And we know that your generation is a big chunk of mm -hmm. those people um, who are losing their precarious employments because of COVID-19 and, of course, are also impacted, we see this around the world, impacted the most from, from climate uh, the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so economically, I mean, if we want to sort of look at the at the bigger picture, where, you know, where do you see hope there? We just, uh, somebody said, I, I, you know, watching Joe, Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Saunders uh, mm -hmm. debating the other night was a little like two old men scrapping. Um, but, uh, but I mean, having said that, you know, you know, we want to have some hope. So, so when you look at the broader political picture, wh what do you think? What do you think, Kendall? Um, I mean, I think that um, on a community level, I think people are really, really clearly offering support emotionally and physically and through um, through online platforms. So even in Toronto, within a few days, there was a group created for supporting um, through this crisis of COVID-19. Um, but I think um, the hope in the political sphere comes from uh, this pressure that we're creating from below, this grassroots um, movement um, to actually create systems change. Because I don't think that um, it, it, the climate crisis and all of these social justice issues that we're seeing can be solved by tweaking some policies within the, the greater system of colonial capitalism. Uh, like we what? Have, what should we be doing? Well, I think that like mass mobilization is one of the only ways that we'll be able to um, like push for the radical changes that need to happen, and especially given the time frame that um, that we've been given. So the IPCC is the the panel, uh, the International Panel uh, on Climate Change, and they've given us ten years. So I think that that is um, pressure in itself to make sure that we're pushing enough from below to make those changes kind of come to life in in policy and in in the political sphere where they might not have enough will to do it on their own. So in, in terms of the pressure of the mass movements, what do we want our government to do? What should the government be doing right now? Be, be bold, Kendall, be bold. Okay. <laughs> um, so actually, Fridays for Future has drafted a, a statement for uh, the COVID crisis, and um, we're very concerned that poor and working class people were, will bear the brunt, uh, like you're saying, um, youth who might have precarious jobs and workers in the bottom in income quartile are more than twice as likely um, to work at a job where they can't work from home. Um, so we are uh, demanding that the government um, implement a comprehensive paid leave package, one that guarantees full income without interruption uh, to maintain the basic uh, of life, including food, rent, um, to anyone who faces uh, loss of income because of the virus. And uh, uh, we call for a comprehensive support for small and medium businesses, so many continue to employ these workers when the pandemic is over. Um, so a lot of these kind of crises come with Band-Aid solutions where um, policymakers will 
will implement something for the time being and it will let people hobble through the crisis until it's over and then things will get reversed again. Uh, like you were talking about for the healthcare reversals um, with Natalie, um, they haven't fully reversed them and it's likely that they'll be, they'll be taken away again after the crisis. But in order for us to be um, fully safe and fully supported, we need to have these things in place all the time to make sure that these crises don't um, put people in peril. So that's kind of a general demand that we've kind of come up with as a group. Absolutely. And and one of the things I would add to that is, you know, one of the sectors of our economy that makes a whole lot of money and they make it... Um, uh, a lot of it from fossil fuels mm-hmm. uh, are our banking, our banking systems and our mining systems. And um, there was a wonderful uh, demonstration when we were still having them uh, outside of the mining conference. It, it, mm-hmm. And it, it was it's kind of bizarre that one of the people at the conference <laughs> tested positive and that all 25,000 yeah. or something are, are concerned about that. But I mean, these systems, uh, I, I think what's important and is just that we recognize that all these systems are interlinked, that um, that our health care is important, that we look after uh, justice uh, issues that don't seem to be related mm-hmm. to COVID-19 and don't seem to be related immediately to the climate even, but that everything is, is related and we're related to everybody on this planet. Mm-hmm. And what happens mm-hmm. here happens there. So yeah. you're 23. What are you doing with your time? Are you in school now, Kendall? Um, I am applying to graduate programs, uh, mm-hmm. but funny enough, I was also volunteering at St. Mike's Hospital, <laughs> which uh, got cut recently because of the incident um, uh, as I was doing some research there. So, um, yeah, so I definitely saw kind of the transition really, uh, really quickly from everything being calm to the next day, everything shutting down and uh, the, the uh, hospitals kind of gearing up for the crisis that they're expecting to have to deal with this week. Yeah, I think in, in some senses there are already dealing. So just mm-hmm. to reiterate, what is going to be happening upcoming to, uh, to fight the climate crisis? What should we be doing? Yeah, so um, I would recommend going to Get Into Checkpoint to check out the online actions for Wet'suwet'en that are happening this week. Um, those would be calling, emailing, um, just making a lot of noise online to make sure that um, the people at the front lines that don't have the privilege of self-isolating can uh, still feel supported by people uh, around uh, across Turtle Island, so across Canada. Um, and then um, just making and sure by that... by the way, you... just to interrupt, I mean, our, mm-hmm. our First Nations, uh, you know, they're on reservations, many of them, without running, clean running water and haven't had it forever. I mean, yeah. they're they're very vulnerable to, to the virus. Mm-hmm. But anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, so mm-hmm. actually, to that point, um, yeah, those uh, the people on reservations, uh, they're disproportionately affected. They have uh, lack of access to clean and safe water and are often employed in uh, precarious work where they can't just take time off, uh, and they're in a lot of crowding. So um, a lot of the recommendations from health professionals include, like, washing your hands frequently and self-isolating in in your home. But if you have lots of people in your home and you don't have access to clean water, that's not really a, um, a possibility to keep yourself safe, um, which is really uh, upsetting. And then just 
in the past, um, our government hasn't been really supportive of Indigenous communities who have been affected by um, outbreaks. Um, so the uh, the H1N1 outbreak um, in uh, communities in northern Manitoba that were disproportionately affected, um, lots of people were sick, lots of elders, um, and they were disproportionately affected. They asked for more medicine, and the, the government actually sent them body bags, and that's all the... <laughs> That's all the stuff that they got, and it, it's just horrible to hear that. And um, we just can't stand for um, the same injustices to continue happening. Yes, absolutely. And mm-hmm. so just to, to wrap up, we're talking with Kendall Marr. She's Fridays for Future, climate justice activist, uh, young woman, and, um, and of course, another place to check is Extinction Rebellion uh, Toronto on their site to find out what actions are being called for in light of the climate crisis as well. So not to forget, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Wet'suwet'en are still staring down the RCMP. Uh, it, that gas link is still going on, and uh, we should be cognizant of that as mm-hmm. well. Thank you so much, Kendall, for being yes, on the thank Radical you so much. Reverend Show. Um, so we're going to go out with 100 Degrees and Rising by Incognito. But before we do, just to let you know out there to stay safe, do all the do things, wash your hands, don't touch your face if you can possibly avoid it. Uh, City of Toronto is also advising now don't go out. Businesses are closing. Um, if you can, self-isolate. If you can't, um, try to keep uh, a, a reasonable and safe distance from others and by the way if you want to reach me i'm all over social media please do i'm always happy to as i've said pray with you listen to you talk to you if you feel very alone and i've had a number of people call me in that situation so feel free don't hesitate our church services will be online as of sunday and uh, do tune in. You can sing the hymns from home. Uh, and of course, you can hear this show up on SoundCloud in a few days. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show.